It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to World Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm Gideon Rachman. Today, we're discussing the new leadership of the European Union, selected earlier this week in a late-night summit. Joining me on the line from Brussels is our correspondent there, Jim Brunston, and here in the studio is Europe editor Ben Hall. Jim, I described it as a late-night summit. I mean, they all are, but this one seemed particularly fraught. I mean, watching from a distance, I did actually wonder whether they would be able to find a compromise and therefore find the new head of the European Commission and the European Council and so on. How touch and go was it? Yeah, exactly. I think that's what sets it apart. I mean, it's actually a summit where they had a total collapse and total failure on the Monday, only to then pull things back together and hatch a deal by the Tuesday. So, you know, we're used to having all-night summits where talks are very difficult and then they emerge at dawn or there and thereabouts to announce that they found a compromise on everything from Greek bailouts to maybe at least part of a solution to uh, creating some kind of migration system for Europe, for example. But on this occasion, they talked all the way through the night on Sunday, got into Monday morning and were basically nowhere, and then probably made the bad decision to carry on trying. And so then another three or four hours ensued, which diplomats have described to me as being chaotic, crazy, and groups of leaders sitting around trying to come up with a deal completely back of the envelope kind of way. Then I think they took the more sensible decision to go get a few hours sleep. And then finally, the deal was hatched on Tuesday. So the deal that was eventually hatched came up with a president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, the German defence minister, who'd been completely undiscussed beforehand. How much did she just sort of emerge suddenly as somebody's brainwave? And how much was this always in retrospect in the background? And probably more important, Jim, what's she going to be like as the commission president? Yeah, Ursula von der Leyen was on the very long list, if you like, of potential alternative candidates for the centre-right. I say alternative because the official candidate for the centre-right, also known in Brussels as the European People's Party, so this is the grouping of Christian Democrats and and centre-right leaders, their official candidate was Manfred Weber, member of the European Parliament. When it became clear that wasn't going to fly, which was apparent before this summit, they needed a plan B. And her name, Ursula von der Leyen's name, was in that conversation. But to be honest, the main people who were mentioning it were the French. And in the end, it was French President Emmanuel Macron who really pushed her cause and put forward the idea of building a package around her, which is what eventually worked and broke the deadlock in the talks. I'm told by one source that during the negotiations, her name did come up at slightly earlier stages. She was mentioned as a possible high representative for foreign policy. So the EU foreign minister role. But really, I think the fact that she emerged from, if you like, slightly from left field really helped in a way because it completely changed the dynamic of the discussion up to then. All during this summit, they'd been trying to solve this enigma of how to build a package around Franz Timmermans, a Dutch socialist as commission president, and Manfred Weber as president of the European Council. This is a plan that had been sort of hit upon and it wouldn't work. 
And I think bringing her in completely changed the dynamic, not least because it then brought the ECB much more centrally into the discussion with Christine Lagarde getting that post. So it just shifted the tectonic plates a bit, created some breathing room for discussion. In terms of what kind of commission president she's going to be, the answer is we don't really know. She's known to have very strong integrationist views. Some people refer to her as a European federalist, but there's an idea in Brussels actually that generally we're moving from Jean-Claude Juncker, who is an old school European federalist, but also very pragmatic, and Donald Tusk, who is by no means a European federalist, to generally a much more avowedly old school Europhile, if you like, team, um, with Charles Michel from Belgium leading the council and Mrs. von der Leyen leading the commission. I think maybe we can expect, therefore, to see some quite ambitious projects coming back on the table and perhaps some quite controversial ones. So solidarity for southern European countries on migration in the form of compulsory migrant quotas may be very difficult and also maybe some ambitious projects for the Eurozone. So, Ben, I mean, obviously, this is all a package. Are we right to focus on van der Leyen at the head of the commission as the headline? Or may we, in retrospect, decide that it's Christine Lagarde's move to the European Central Bank that will make or break this package? I suppose we're focusing on Ursula von der Leyen, partly because, of course, it's at the centre of the political controversy and the political action. But I agree, I think Christine Lagarde is the more significant appointment and may have a bigger role in terms of shaping the future of the Eurozone than Ursula von der Leyen at the end of the day. And it's also an appointment which has stoked some controversy or at least questions because of course Christine Lagarde has no experience as a central banker, has no experience of monetary policy, is not an economist but she clearly is a very talented smart, charismatic woman with very very good political skills and she surrounds herself with good technical people and since Mario Draghi is really sort of setting the course for monetary policy for some time to come it may be that she's a success And Ben, uh, Jim said that the French had been pushing Ursula von der Leyen And generally, this whole package is being seen as a bit of a triumph for Emmanuel Macron. So you have a French woman as the head of the ECB. You've got a candidate that they proposed as the head of the commission. You've got a francophone Belgian as the head of the council. Do you think that's the right way to read it? And if so, is it a technical triumph on which the French basically managed to shape the decisions? Do they actually get anything out of it in the long run in terms of advancing France's national agenda? I think it's definitely a win for Emmanuel Macron. I think that is beyond doubt, especially when you put it in the context of his recent sort of failures to build alliances and to make any headway on Eurozone reform, for example. I think this is clearly a big win for him. He has used his influence within the European Parliament or his party within the European Parliament to good effect. He's established a good liberal beachhead in European policymaking, which I think will be important in the years ahead. But at the end of the day, these are just a few people in a few very important, critical posts. But all the underlying problems of the EU and the Eurozone remain, as do many of the fundamental tensions between France and Germany on how to solve those problems. They're not solved by these appointments. And what do you think will happen, Jim, actually? You mentioned that there may be more of a federalist push now. Do you think that that's likely to make much headway, given that the centre of any federalist push, it seems to me, has to be attempts to build more of an economic union around the euro. And the resistance will actually come probably from Germany, from Mrs. van der Leyen's own country. 
Well, again, I think this goes back to Ben's point. I think there's a risk of overstating the importance of these appointments. Getting someone who's your political ally or shares your political vision into a top job in Brussels doesn't mean that your agenda is now going to carry the day simply because this is a system where anything significant has to be approved by national governments. The most important stuff has to be directly approved by national leaders. And then you've got the European Parliament to contend with as well. But it certainly helps. I mean, Macron has come along with a very ambitious agenda for the EU of centralizing economic policy and of forging very strong cooperation in other areas. And having basically your mates in key coordinating roles can only help. Macron's often cut quite an isolated figure at EU summits, but now his political best mate, Charles Michel, is now going to be chairing those summits. So it can only help really in terms of just kind of greasing the wheels of processes, you know, endless Brussels processes and machinations you need to go through to get some kind of result. I think what it certainly does mean is that you've got leaders who want to push Europe forward in quite ambitious ways, in a similar way to Mr. Macron. So just to sort of take a counterexample, you haven't got a very cautious conservative leader from Central Eastern Europe coming in, taking over a major Brussels institution with an agenda to say, row back on EU lawmaking slash EU regulations and basically rewind parts of EU integration. You've got people coming in who are going to have a very positive agenda to try and keep building the European project. And that naturally works in the favour of leaders like Emmanuel Macron, who want to do exactly that. And Ben, I mean, that does touch on an interesting point that seemed to me to emerge from this summit, which is that it is, again, from the outside, seems like a bit of a defeat for Central and Eastern Europe. They used up all their ammunition to block Franz Timmermans, who'd been taking some countries such as Poland to court. But now they're faced with an entirely Western European federalist team, which geographically and ideologically they'll not like. Yes, they seem to take so much pleasure in blocking Timmermans and for the Hungarians and blocking uh, Manfred Weber that they saw it as a triumph for them and for their unity of the Visegrad Four, as they're called. But I agree. I mean, they clearly can be an effective negative force, but do they have anything positive out of it? How do they move forward their agenda now? Will Ursula von der Leyen be any softer on rule of law issues? I doubt it. So to me, it felt like a pretty fleeting victory for them. And it shows you that they're going to need to do a lot more to be able to build a positive alliance. And maybe it's not just Eastern Europe, Eastern Europe and Italy. They need to figure out a way that they can actually use their influence better. Yeah. And lastly, since we're in London, we obviously have to discuss Brexit. The new British government will be showing up quite soon, probably led by Boris Johnson, asking for rapid adjustments to the Brexit deal. Otherwise, we're going to end with a no-deal Brexit. Now, it always seemed to me, Jim, that it's unlikely we're going to get any adjustments, but that the last EU summit had shown there was a reluctance to embrace no-deal Brexit on the part of the EU, and that Macron got some pushback when he seemed to be proposing that. But now we have Charles Michel at the head of the European Council. Does that make actually a no-deal Brexit slightly more likely? It's really interesting to note that Donald Tusk, the man who Charles Michel will be succeeding as as European Council president, I think he's often portrayed in the UK press as being this opponent to Britain because he's been very outspoken against Brexiters such as Boris Johnson. You know, his, his most famous quote is that Brexiters have a special place in hell because they encourage the UK to vote to leave without having, a, I think, what he described at the time as a shred of a plan. But actually, Donald Tusk is fundamentally Anglophile politician who was devastated that the UK voted to leave and desperately wanted the UK to reverse the decision. So the UK and its influence in Europe had a very, very strong friend in Donald Tusk. 
He's now being placed by Charles Michel, who up to now has played the role of being the most outspoken EU leader when it comes to expressing frustrations about the UK's approach to Brexit, when it comes to saying that the EU should be ready to take a no deal if necessary, when it comes to pretty much ridiculing, to be honest, the way the UK has gone about the negotiations. So he's in a way been the man, the person, the politician saying the things that other leaders such as Angela Merkel can't say. And now he is the one who is going to be chairing these summits where the new British Prime Minister will be attending, so long as we're still in the EU, so long as the UK is still in the EU. And afterwards, and even during that, we'll be chairing meetings of the other 27 EU leaders. So it's a very, very interesting change and pretty quite a worrying one for the UK. Yeah, Ben, do you share that view? Yes, although I suppose that Charles Michel will have to moderate his frustrations as EU Council president. But I suppose we're at that stage in the process where even minute changes of attitude and temperament could count for quite a lot. Yeah, because Tusk pushed back against Macron and Michel won't. I don't think he will, no, certainly not at the beginning. Okay, well, we'll have to leave it there for now, but we'll get a sense of how all this is playing out in the coming months as the new team take their places in Brussels. But for now, thank you very much indeed to Jim Bronston in Brussels, to Ben Hall here in the studio in London. That's it for this week. Until next week, goodbye.